Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. you take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 1. In a moment we'll read verses 18 through 25. Today marks the day that we remember the greatest intervention in human history. That God came in the flesh. Do you appreciate it when someone intervenes in your life? (laughs) Or do you say, mind your own business? (laughs) Praise the Lord that he did not mind his own business, but that he came for us to save us, to rescue us, that he intervened. And we need to remember that constantly because we are people who forget. Some of the greatest things have happened in human history, there have needed to be reminders of them. The Israelites, when they came through the wilderness, when they went into the promised land, when they crossed the Jordan River, the Lord said to them, take 12 stones from the river and set them up as memorial stones so that when your children ask, what mean these stones? You can tell them how the Lord brought you out of Egypt, how he made you walk through dry land, through the Red Sea, how he made you walk through dry land, through the Jordan River, all the way to the promised land. What means this day? God, God came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank God that he intervened when we needed it the most. So let's stand and read about this great intervention. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. We plead this all by the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. John Owen was a Puritan who is known for his writings on the Holy Spirit, his writings on the glory of Christ, his writings on even apostasy. But here's a quote from John Owen so many years ago. God in his own essence, being and existence, is absolutely incomprehensible. His nature being immense and all his holy properties essentially infinite, no creature can directly or perfectly comprehend them or any of them. He must be infinite that can perfectly comprehend that which is infinite. Wherefore, God is perfectly known unto himself only, the subsistence of his most single and simple nature in three distinct persons, though it raises and ennobles faith in its revelation. Yet it amazeth reason, which would trust to itself in the contemplation of it, whence men grow giddy, who will own no other guide and are carried out of the way of truth. Does the incarnation of Christ make you giddy? It's not a word that we often use in our vocabulary. Would we ever want to be giddy? Sounds immature, doesn't it? Little girls are giddy might sound like some kind of impropriety even. This is what Ebenezer Scrooge says in The Christmas Carol when he wakes up a changed man on Christmas morning. He says, I'm as light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. I'm as giddy as a drunken man. A Merry Christmas to everybody. A Happy New Year to all the world seems to be improper to be giddy. Who would want to be giddy? What does it even mean? It is defined as feeling excited to the point of disorientation. Almost as if you are so overcome with excitement, you lose yourself for a moment, forget what you are doing, and everything else seems to fade as the excitement takes over and dominates you completely. 
For many of us, perhaps, giddiness has long gone from our lives. We cannot possibly feel giddy because we look at our lives, we look at the world around us. Our hearts rarely soar to the heights of giddiness. Rather, we are often weighed down, depressed, downcast, disheartened, disturbed by the darkness that we feel closing in all around us. Can there be any giddiness in our lives? Should there be any giddiness in our lives? Can one even be giddy at Christmas? It seems that some of my children have been giddy for this whole week. Can we be giddy today? It depends on how we view our lives and also on how we define Christmas. If we define Christmas like the culture defines Christmas, if it's merely materialism, making oneself busy, focusing on oneself, Christmas will not make us giddy. It might have sparks of relief here or there, but there is nothing that lasts. But if our definition of Christmas revolves around the incarnation of Christ, then I I believe there is reason to be giddy, and it's a rightful response to be giddy when we grasp what we can of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says on this point. The fact of the incarnation creates mental giddiness in those who seek to understand it because it is an event without analogy, but also because it expresses an awe-inspiring condescension on the part of God. Has our giddiness gone away? Have we even lost all sense of mental giddiness? Perhaps we need to regain our giddiness of the incarnation. Maybe we need to look again at the birth of Jesus. What I am saying is that I believe most of us have lost this sense of giddiness and that it needs to be regained. We need to get it back. It could be we have stopped seeking to understand what it means for Jesus Christ to be born. We do not take time to stand in awe of it. We have lost the uniqueness of it. Maybe this morning you are incredulous. You believe that you have not lost the giddiness of the incarnation. I hope that is true, and I am thankful for that. So, if you haven't lost the giddiness, replace this word regain with maintain. So, if you've lost the giddiness, let's regain it. If you have it, let's maintain it. All right? But whether we are regaining or maintaining Our text gives us three truths that we need to rejoice in so that we have this giddiness of the incarnation in our hearts and in our minds. Three truths. You can follow along in your bulletin if that is helpful. Number one, we regain the giddiness of the incarnation by rejoicing in Jesus' conception. We will regain the giddiness of the incarnation by rejoicing in Jesus' conception. At first, this does not seem like an odd thing to do. 
In fact, it might be a very ordinary thing. When a married couple announces they are having a baby, it often results in smiles, hugs, laughter, sometimes shock, sometimes people jumping up and down. Rejoicing in the conception of a baby is a normal reaction to that announcement. The news, however, of Jesus' conception did not bring joy, at least at first, in particular to Joseph. We see Joseph as the focus of our verses here. While Mary is mentioned, much of our attention goes to Joseph. While we have been working our way down the family Christmas tree of Jesus, we have not been given details of many of the births of these people. But now, as we come to Matthew, Matthew, as it is, double clicks on verse 16. So there, verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. It's as if now Matthew double clicks on that verse and expands it in verses 18 through 25. We understand how the line of Jesus has progressed from Abraham all the way to Joseph. But now, Matthew, so inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, Ah, but you don't know how this one is conceived. Jesus' conception breaks the pattern of his family tree. It is unlike any of his predecessors. It is unlike anyone else who has ever existed. We start with Mary, the mother of Jesus, betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal is like an engagement, but it is a legally binding agreement. It is not easily broken. It would still require divorce proceedings to make it come to an end. So while the man and the woman were bound legally to one another, the marriage ceremony had not yet taken place and the marriage had not yet been consummated. So there was a problem. Mary was found to be with child. She would be considered an adulterer. It would have been thought of that she was Immoral. She had broken the covenant that she had with Joseph. The news of the conception was not initially good news to Joseph's ears. Joseph's character here is put on display for us. We are told that he was a just man, that is, he was a righteous man. He always sought to do what was righteous, right, and true. He followed the rules wholeheartedly. But because of what he perceived, that Mary had been unfaithful, he could have gone through with divorcing her. He could have put her to open and public shame. While the Old Testament law said that Mary could have been put to death for such adultery, this often was not carried out in these days in Israel. But yet he still could have made it known of her sin. And she could have been ostracized, removed from society, and could have led a life of poverty and struggle. In one sense, Joseph knew he had to follow the rules, but he was willing to do it in a compassionate way. 
He was unwilling to put her to open shame, to make it public, to ruin Mary. He did not want to take vengeance, to pay her back for all of the pain and the hurt that she had caused him. He instead resolved in his heart to divorce her quietly. And he then considered and pondered and thought about these things. He wasn't a rash man. He was patient, contemplative, self-controlled. But as he considered, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And it says here, behold. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. That word behold is meant to grab our attention. It's meant, meant to make us sit up and take notice of what is going on. This is nothing ordinary. This is something extraordinary that is happening to Joseph. So this angel from the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. The angel of the Lord is a messenger from God himself, communicating God's divine message directly to Joseph. And Joseph is called the son of David. Remember your line, Joseph. I know you remember your forefather David and his heart. He was a king who was a man after God's own heart. Remember David. He was the one who took a man's wife and committed adultery with her and then made her his own I know that you are a just and righteous man. I know that that is not your heart. I know that you want to uphold the law, but do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Do not be afraid of the circumstance. Do not be afraid of what others might say. Do not be afraid that you will be failing to uphold the law of God because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We so often talk about the virgin birth, but what we have here more accurately is a virginal conception. <laughs> There may have been some miraculous births in the line of Christ, women who were barren, whose wombs were closed, who then conceived and bore children, barren wombs opened by God, still conceived in the normal way between a husband and a wife, a father and a mother. Mary did not have a barren womb. It was not like Mary and Joseph had tried for years to have a baby with fail, Mary conceived without any relations whatsoever. Jesus didn't spring forth from a barren womb. He sprung forth from a virgin womb. And it was by the supernatural act of the Holy Spirit that brought this about. The divine power of the Spirit of God is the cause of the conception of Jesus. And more importantly, He is the sole cause of Christ's conception. We say it takes two to tango. Well, not in the conception of Jesus. And the way that Matthew words these verses here 
removes even Mary from being an actor in the conception. She is not an active participant in the conception. You hear what happens there. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew goes to great lengths even to show that Mary is not an active participant in this conception. But who is the actor? Well, look at what it says here in verse 20. We get two little words from this text, two very important words. These two words, is from. Is from, and in particular that little word, is. Notice Matthew does not say, Mary conceived from the Holy Spirit. He said, the one is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That is important. If Matthew had said Mary is conceived from the Holy Spirit, it could have led readers to think that somehow the Spirit fulfilled the male role in the conception of Jesus. But God forbid such a thought. That is why Matthew put is from, because it removes the Holy Spirit from being the agent in the conception of Jesus and makes him the sole source of Jesus' conception. Do we have reason to rejoice yet? Yes, we do, because we begin to see that the conception of Jesus was a monergistic work of the Spirit of God, that it is, it was a work of God and of God alone. It was not helped by the will of man. He was not assisted in any way to do this miraculous work. It was God's sole initiative by which Jesus was conceived. This is a conception of God's grace for all mankind. The monergistic work at Christ's conception was an indication that another monergistic work was going to take place through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So here it is, this sole action by God in the conception of Jesus Christ was pointing to another work that was going to take place that was going to be the sole work of God, and that is our salvation. Our salvation is a work of God and of God alone, whereby the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who is the source of Jesus' conception, now is the one who regenerates us and saves us and gives us the gift of faith. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. Through what? Through the washing and regeneration of the Spirit. That is how God makes us new. God's sole work, sole initiative in our lives. God's work in the conception of Christ is to help us see that what God intends to do, he can do, and nothing is impossible for God. It was not impossible for God to bring life to a virgin womb, and it's not impossible for God to bring dead sinners back to life and give them new hearts. Thank you, Lord. 
Jesus' conception should make us giddy. But number two, we will regain the giddiness of the incarnation by rejoicing in Jesus' salvation. We will regain the giddiness of the incarnation by rejoicing in Jesus' salvation. I want us to rewind for a moment to something that I glazed over without much thought. Joseph had an angel of the Lord appear to him in a dream, or more specifically, during a dream. Do we ever stop for a moment and think about that? Why did the angel of the Lord appear to Joseph in a dream? In the Gospel of Luke, you have other angel appearances surrounding the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. So the, Gabriel, uh, the angel Gabriel came to both Zechariah and Mary. Luke does not say that Gabriel appeared to them in dreams. Zechariah, in fact, saw the angel standing on the right side of the altar of incense merely says that Gabriel was sent to Mary. But this angel now appeared to Joseph in a dream. Why this way and why Joseph? Take a step back for a moment. Think of this in the scope of the scriptures. Have we read anything like this before? This idea of Joseph having a dream? It rings many bells, doesn't it? It should at least ring one bell. There was another Joseph back in Genesis. This Joseph was in the line of Jacob. And what happens when we're introduced to Joseph, when he comes on the scene? What does he do? He has dreams. He has dreams that his brothers and his mother and his father would actually bow down to him. And he's even called this dreamer by his brothers. This Joseph was hated by his brothers and subsequently sold into slavery by them. He then descends into Egypt, eventually winding up in the lowest part of Egypt in the prison. But then he is exalted to the highest position beside being Pharaoh himself. And why did, this, why did all of this happen to Joseph? Why did Joseph have these dreams? Why was he sold by his brothers into slavery? Why did he live all of those years in Egypt? To preserve the people of God. So take your Bibles. Turn back to Genesis for a moment. Genesis 45. Let's start there. Genesis 45. Verse 7. says, Joseph speaking to his brothers. Genesis 45, 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And here are the important words. And to keep alive for you many survivors. Joseph saw that. That was the reason why God had sent him to Egypt. God sent me here to keep you alive, to keep our people alive, to keep God's people alive. But then look over at Genesis 47, verse 25. Genesis 47, verse 25. Now, there's been a famine in the land, 
And Joseph, with his wisdom, has made it so that everyone's had enough food. They've been able to survive during the famine. And here's what now the Egyptians say to Joseph. Genesis 47, 25. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. What did the Egyptians say? You have saved our lives. In fact, it's the same exact word that Joseph uses when he says, God has sent me to keep you alive. Now turn over to Genesis 50, verse 20. Genesis 50, verse 20. This is now Joseph again speaking after his father was dead. And Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Same word, kept alive, saved, kept alive. What was Joseph supposed to do? He was supposed to preserve the people of God, to save them. It was through Joseph that many people were saved. And notice it was not only his own kin, it was also even the Egyptians. Here now, is another Joseph who has an angel appear to him in a dream to tell him of one to whom one day everyone will bow down and who rules and who reigns over everyone and who is the savior of the world. It is through Jesus that many are kept alive, preserved, and saved. And this is the promise that's attached to Jesus' name. Jesus means Yahweh saves. Jesus does not merely bring Yahweh salvation. He is Yahweh who saves. And he will save his people. Who are his people? Is it merely the Jews? Well, we know that Jesus did come to save the Jews. But we also know that his salvation is not limited to the Jews because we know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Who then are his people? Who are Messiah's people? It might seem like a shock, but Jesus' people are sinners. Do you see that there? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What we know about Jesus' people is that they are sinners. This is who Jesus came to save. He didn't come to save the righteous, for no one is righteous, not even one. He did not come for the good people, because no one does good. 
The angel uses that word sin here in an unusual way because he personifies it. Sin is described as an enslaving agent that is holding people captive. It's dominating them. It's killing them. Jesus saves sinners through his death on the cross whereby he bears their sin in his body on that tree so they might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus saved people through his death and resurrection. That is why Jesus has come. He's come for sinners. He has not come to keep people in their sin. He's come to save people from their sin. He has not come to say, it's okay if you keep on sinning. He has come for those so that he might bear their sin, bear their, their punishment in his own body and save them from their captivity, from their deadness in sin. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saint is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. There is a sense that as we read this verse, that Jesus came to save his people from their sins, that it strikes a chord of conviction in our hearts. We are those sinners who need to be saved. We are those sinners whose mountain of sin is piled up to the heavens. We are those sinners who have transgressed God's law, who have rebelled against Him. But God sent His Son. God sent His Son to remove our sins from us to level the mountain flat, to cleanse us and purify us and to make us his people. Jesus came as a baby, but he grew to be a man and he is our savior. Many might like to try to keep Jesus in the manger. Because if you keep Jesus in the manger, he is no savior. He is weak, he is helpless, he is dependent. But Jesus is the mighty savior. The mighty savior who is stronger than your sin the mighty Savior who is stronger than your pride, the mighty Savior who is stronger than death itself. Rejoice in his salvation. Number three, we will regain the giddiness of the incarnation by rejoicing in Jesus' perfection. We will regain the giddiness of the incarnation by rejoicing in Jesus' perfection. 
There is a progression here that we must be aware of. We look at this next part of our verses. And Matthew gives a a fulfillment. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. We look at this name, Emmanuel, which means God with us, and we are comforted by it. Makes us feel good. It is a word of reassurance and hope. But sometimes we forget to ask, how is it that God is able to be with us? We forget that left in our sin, we are separated from God, from His goodness, from His holiness, and from His glory. So we must be saved from our sins so that we can know God with us. We need Jesus' saving work done in our lives so we can be reconciled to God. We need Yahweh saves before we can experience the full joy of Emmanuel. Matthew highlights Jesus' perfection in verses 22 and 23. First, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the scriptures. Matthew uses this fulfillment formula ten times in his gospel. In fulfilling the scriptures, it points to Jesus' perfect obedience. He perfectly fulfills God's word. And in so doing, he also perfectly obeys God's word. But Matthew is also highlighting that this is no ordinary baby. This is God come in the flesh. He is God, therefore he is perfect. He has no flaws, no faults, no sin. Possessing Emmanuel is to be in the presence of perfection. The only way that we can know God with us is to know the great exchange It is both that Jesus took our sin upon himself and bore the wrath and judgment of God that we deserved and it's his righteousness imputed or credited to our account. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Without this Emmanuel, God with us, It is torture rather than tranquility. It disturbs us rather than delights us. Jesus doesn't merely bring us to God. He is God. He gives us himself so that he might be with us always. This is how Matthew begins his gospel. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. How does Matthew end his gospel? Matthew 28. You turn there. Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end 
of the age. Jesus, in the very last words recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, says, I am Emmanuel. I am the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. I am the goal of everything. Everything is about me and points to me. I am God come in the flesh. I am the God who has all authority in heaven and on earth. I am God through whom glory will shine. And now, disciples, I'm calling you to be a part of spreading this glory over all of the globe. This light of mine is going to shine over all the nations. And I'm calling you brothers and sisters, to be a part of spreading this glory. I'm calling you to be a part of calling people who sit in darkness to come to the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. To embrace Him. To put their faith and trust in Him. To repent and turn of their, from their sin. To receive the gift of eternal life. To submit themselves wholeheartedly and completely to Jesus. And to know that He is with us as the glory goes forth. And that He doesn't leave us. And that He will never forsake us. And that He is with us even now. What incarnation that God has come in the flesh, it should make us and must make us giddy. Giddy because we can know with certainty that God has caused Jesus to be conceived in a virgin womb. Giddy because we know of the salvation that Jesus brings. Giddy because we know Jesus is the perfect God and is the perfect sacrifice for sin. And that he hasn't left us. And that he is with us even now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your holy word, which... always tells us exactly what we need to hear. And so on this Christmas morning, we need to hear Jesus has come to save us from our sins. That He has reconciled us to God. And that He is with us. May we know His presence through His Spirit. And may His presence strengthen us to spread the glory, the glory of God over all the earth. Help us 
to always focus on Christ and forgive us when Christ has been forgotten or when Christ has been crowded out or when we maybe have lost our giddiness of the incarnation. Renew it in us, I pray today. O oh Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.